Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Did you know that we have a social media site just for writers? You can find it at storycraft.cafe. You can meet other story crafters that share the same hopes, dreams, struggles, and victories as you do. Join in the daily writing challenges, see when a new author interview is coming up, and join in the conversation and fun. Again, that's storycraft.cafe. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave us a review if you don't mind. It helps others find us. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'll drop a link in the show notes so you can find it easily. You can join me live as I conduct these author interviews, and you too can join in the conversation live as it happens. Now on to our show. Well, thanks for joining me here in the StoryCraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner, as always. Today, I am super excited to have one of my all-time favorite authors. I absolutely look forward to and love uh, the summer season for a lot of reasons. One of those being there's always a new David Bell book that comes out. And uh, not only do I get to enjoy uh, a new book by David and, uh, you know, some of the most fun adventures I get to go on every year, but then I get to hang out with David. I think this is like our fifth time that we've done this and uh, always so much fun. Great insight that David brings to the conversation. His new book is Try Not to Breathe, a phenomenal addition to your uh, your catalog, David. I love everything that you've done with this book. Welcome back to the show. You have said so many nice things. I should just be quiet because I can only make it worse. You're so nice to me. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, and, and I meant it. I, I look forward to this time of year each year. Uh, try not to breathe. I, one thing that I love about the books that you write, David, is that while they're all mysteries, thrillers, you know, wh whatever bucket you want to drop them in, they are all unique and uniquely you. Um, what was the what was the the genesis of this book? Um, you know, they're, they're, I, I'm always fascinated by the the moment of birth of inspiration for a book where, you know, this this character walks onto the stage of your mind or maybe you're pondering, you know, kind of this scenario that maybe you've read about in the news or seen what you know whatever the catalyst is there's then this moment where the story begins in your mind what is that 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 birth uh like usually for you i guess for me it was thinking about the sisters and the family in the book um my family is not nearly as dramatic or complicated as the family in the book but um, in the book, there are three sisters, um, and the two older sisters are full siblings, and then they have a half-sister who's nine years younger than them. 
Um, and my family dynamic is like that. I have two older half siblings. Um, we share a mom. We have a different dad. Um, I don't. I don't think of them as half siblings. I mean, I, you know, because I wouldn't know. I'm the youngest. I wouldn't know any different about who right. was who, right? Um, so, but it just got me thinking about that, that that is a complicated dynamic sometimes. Um, and so the two sisters who take up most of the book, Avery is the older sister and Anna is the youngest sister. Um, they're dealing with a lot of resentments toward each other, toward their dad. Um, in various ways, they feel like their dad has overshadowed their lives. Um, and so it just got me thinking about those complicated family dynamics um, that we all experience in some way, shape, or form. And I was also trying to write a book that had, uh, without getting into too much of the stuff that happens at the end of the book, because I want people to be surprised when they get there, but I was trying to write a book that had higher stakes, um, just de delving with into some different settings and stakes and everything that happens at the end of the book. Um, so all those things were kind of going into the book as I started thinking about it. When, um, wh why do you think families are the perfect fodder for mysteries and thrillers? What, what is it about this relationship dynamic that is so rich for these types of stories? Well, we all have a family, um, whether we're, we might be estranged from our families, right? but, but they're still our family that never stops. Um, even if you move away from your family and move around the world and cut off contact with them, they, they shape your life in some way. Um, whether it's that sometimes they shape our lives because we want to be like our family. Uh, sometimes our lives are shaped by saying, I want to be very different from my family. Um, but that's universal, just that experience of being in a family and, and how they shape us. Um, and I think probably every family, to some extent, has secrets and drama and complications, just because you can't have a group of people together um, across generations without there being things that people don't know about, uh, things that people haven't talked about. Um, I do wonder sometimes because, so my, my parents, my dad is dead, my mom is still alive, but they would, my mom is 91 years old. So she comes from a very different generation. Right. I see my friends who have kids and people who are younger than I am having kids. And they're very, they're more open with their kids, I think, than say my parents were. I wonder if, it seems like my parents' generation, it was ripe for family secrets because they didn't talk about anything. Right. Yeah. Um, I wonder if as people are more open with their kids, will there be fewer secrets that don't get talked about someday? Um, but anyway, I, I came from a family from a generation and from a part of the country, the Midwest, where people just didn't talk about stuff that much. Um, and so families are ripe for those kinds of secrets to be hidden. Well, from the from the Midwest, uh, I, I'm from the Deep South, and uh, you know, same. Uh, there are family secrets that that uh, you know become legend. You know, in this right, part of yeah. Country. So, yeah. Um, also, in this book, 
you tackle um, another kind of societal um, hot hot button issue that was was really um, a hot issue um, last summer or the summer before, uh, where we were talking a lot about um, the relationship between citizens and police. And while this book is not um, necessarily about that, uh, it is a a big component of the story. Um, when you're thinking about kind of um, things that are when you're kind of taking the pulse of of the population and and uh, you know, and and thinking about things that that are on people's minds, um, how do you how do you determine how to weave? Um, these circumstances into a story without, um, you know, it, I, I'm I'm struggling for word or how I want to uh, phrase this, but um, you know how you talk about something without that being, um, you know, the th- you're, you're not offering solutions per se, um, you're not coming down as preachy, um, but it definitely has a place in the story. Yeah, I mean, it started just because when I was thinking about the book, I was thinking about Avery, who is really the protagonist of the book, the oldest sister, is a former police officer. And she left the police force because she suffered trauma in the line of duty. Um, Her father is also a former police officer who was much decorated and much respected. And so... I really started thinking about that dynamic that Avery feels like she cannot live up to her dad's um, her dad's legacy as a police officer, um, that she feels like she's let him down. In many ways, the book is a redemption story for Avery. Um, but as I'm writing about police officers, like you said, starting in the summer of 2020, I'm sorry, in the summer of yeah, 2020. Yeah we were all thinking about this issue in a different way. Um, We all had to reckon with that. Um, And so it almost seemed like I couldn't avoid some mention of that in the book. And then to go further with that, since I live in Kentucky, um, the Breonna Taylor case, which happened up in Louisville, was one of the big flashpoint cases for overzealous policing. Breonna Taylor was killed as the police were serving a no-knock warrant on her house. Um, So here I am writing about police officers in Kentucky. It's kind of hard not to at least acknowledge that that issue about police brutality um, is there. Um, Like you're saying, it's not the focus of the book. I'm trying not to be preachy about it. Um, there, There are a variety of police officers depicted in the book. Uh, most of them, I think, are depicted positively, um, but but that issue is there in the background, and I think it just had to be, or the story wouldn't feel entirely honest, especially if it's set in Kentucky at this time in history. You kind of have to admit that that's there and deal with it in some way. Yeah. Uh, David, when did you realize that writers were real people? Uh, we've talked in the past about... Um, the you know when you were younger uh you know how you had this realization um uh, that that this was something that you wanted to do but um for a lot of people we kind of hold stories 
as these ethereal things. And then there's uh, a day when we realize that they're made by people and, and then other people help them publish them. And, uh, you know, and if people can do that, then we can do that. Uh, when did you realize that stories were made by real people? Yeah, I kind of like when I was in school, it, it felt like the writers we were reading were either dead um, or were off far away. You know, I, I maybe just this notion that writers all lived in Europe or they lived in New York City <laughs> right. or New England. Right? Like, again, I grew up in Ohio, so um, it always felt like, well, there's no one interesting here in Ohio, right? <laughs> all the all the fancy, famous authors are in New England or they're in Europe or they're dead. Um, and so, but as I got older, um, part of it was going to school, going to college and then graduate school where there were writers teaching creative writing classes who were right there, you know, in Indiana or Ohio or wherever, right? Right. So I, and so I kind of started to figure that out, which is an obvious thing to figure out. I remember I went to a writing conference once for the weekend and one of the writers who was the instructor there, um, you know, everybody was wrapping up on Sunday and then we kind of like, you know, checking out of the hotel and everything. And this guy said, well, you know, I got to run because my daughter has a lacrosse game. And then he like went down into the parking garage and then I was in the parking garage and then he like drove past in his, you know, Toyota Camry or whatever. And it was like, <laughs> Here's a writer, but you know, this person also drives a Toyota Camry. You know, he's not like going around in a private jet. And like anybody else, he has to run off and see his child play lacrosse or soccer or whatever, and probably has to go home and cut the grass or shovel the snow, you know. So I think we all need to understand that most of the books that we see on the shelves and most of the writers we hear about are are actually living people with regular lives right. and the, the glamorous notion of like, you know, your Truman Capote or someone like that, or F Scott Fitzgerald is, is a very, very rare thing for most writers. Well, and when you humanize the process, um, does that make it more accessible, um, you know, to others? Uh, and, and I, I say it because, uh, you know, if you were to, if you had a room of a hundred people and you polled this room and you asked people, um, you know, how many, how many of you think you have a story, uh, in you? And I think the vast majority of hands would go up. I think a lot of people think that. And then, you know, if you keep polling, you know, as you know, people that have tried it and then people that have tried it and finished and then, you know, finished and published, you know, they, it gets smaller and smaller. Um, but I think if you go back to the human element, I think we're storytelling creatures and um, the, the more we can kind of remove the um, uh, the glamour from it, the, the more accessible it comes. Yeah. I think, I think that we all make the assumption that when we see people who have succeeded in any way at something, whether it's acting or writing or music or whatever, we think, Oh, that person must have been sprinkled with fairy dust the day they were born. You know, there's like some magic fairy dust on them, almost like they were ordained by the gods to write a book or be an actor or whatever. 
I think most people, I, there are rare people who have a freakish amount of talent. I, I do think that. Um, but I think most people who pursue these kinds of careers are not sprinkled with fairy dust when they're born. I think they're people who love doing that and they're willing to continue to do it against all logic because it doesn't make sense to do it. You know, like you're not, there are a million reasons not to write a book or to, to right. try to write a song or, or make a painting or whatever. So there are a million reasons not to do it. So the person who endures at doing it is the person who loves to do it. Um, and so I think that there should be a demystification of that. Most of the people who are successful are probably not tremendously gifted or whatever. Um, they've just really wanted to do it and, and endured at it through all the people telling them, no, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there, maybe there should be a little bit of a demystification of that whole thing. Well, and speaking of that, you, you teach, um, English or creative writing, uh, at the university level. Um, the, the students that you get, are they all pursuing like an MFA, uh, or, um, you know, are you, do you have people from, from all, um, you know, specialties that, that take your class? What, what are your students like? Yeah, we have an MFA program. So I teach undergraduates and graduate students. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, the graduate students are different because they, they are attempting to get an advanced degree. So they have, the notion is entered into their head to some extent that they want to do this sure. professionally, or at least try to. Um, now we still have graduate students who get a degree and then they kind of, that fades over time. Um, but those, those students are in a little bit of a different category. The undergraduates, yeah, some of them are serious about it. Some of them are just taking the class because they think it's going to be fun or they think it's going to be easy or whatever. Um, or they just, you know, they like to read or they like movies or something and they think they can write something or they want to try it. Um, they probably they probably have not been demystified in the way I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, Certainly, I can think back to when I was an undergraduate and I took my first creative writing class. I, I was dumb at that point. I thought like, oh, if somebody wants to be a writer, you know, you just, you just start writing and then pretty quickly someone will publish your stuff and you're on your way. Right. It's, it's strange that I thought that because when I was a kid, I, I had taken music lessons when I was a kid and I understood how incredibly hard it was to learn to play a musical instrument, um, especially without any musical ability, which is what I lack for, for doing that. But like learning to play a musical instrument is hard. You have to learn like the most basic notes and scales and, and on and on and on, right? And I, for some reason, I didn't think writing would be like that. Um, so I think we have a lot of undergraduate students who, who are kind of like that. They might harbor a distant dream of being a writer, but they don't really know the reality of that. And they don't necessarily, most of them are not going to go on and pursue it after they right. finish school. They're going to go do something else, um, probably because they're not as determined to do it or in love with doing it as they need to be. And that's fine. 
they're probably going to have happier, uh, more financially stable lives than the few who will actually try to be writers. <laughs> right. Um, if, is there something, it, if you could get across one idea or one piece of information to your undergrad students, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the, the ones that have not declared that they're going to be writers, but just undergrads that, that may take your class for, for whatever reason. If you could convey one idea to them that would hopefully stick with them, um, you know, for the rest of their lives and, and hopefully, you know, um, uh, help them to pursue, you know, writing either for joy or for, um, you know, for their livelihood, wh whatever they do. But is there something that, that you try to get across to students uh, in your class? I try to let them know that it is a long game, um, that my my previous agent who retired, so she's not my agent anymore, she once told me that a writing career is a marathon and it's not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And that is one of those pieces of advice that has stuck in my head yeah. um, because it's true. And so I try to tell my students that, that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And it's more like, the marathon run by the tortoise in the tortoise and the hare. So it's not like running a marathon in two and a half hours or whatever a real marathoner does. It's a, it's like a slow, it's like you're walking a marathon, I guess is what it yeah. is. Um, and I just say that because even if you do pursue a life as a writer and you manage to have some success as a writer, it still happens slowly for most people. So like what I tell them just to, to let them have an insight is I finished, I finished college when I was 22 and I thought I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't publish my first book until I was 38. So that's 16 years from, and I'm not, and it's not that I was writing continuously or, or focused as I could have been, but I just say that's, that's not an unusual career for someone to have that they don't publish a book till they're in their thirties or their forties right. or their fifties. You know, I mean, the good thing about being a writer is you can do it at any time in life. As long as you're mentally and physically capable, you can, you can write a book when you're 80 years old or, or whatever. Right. It's not like being a, gymnast where your career is over when you're 15. So there's that, you have that advantage that it's, you can have a long career, you can do it throughout your life. But the downside of that is that you're going to have friends who are getting, to, like when I was in college, my roommate was a business major. So we graduated from college. He already had a job before we finished school. And was like often like bought a car and a house and got, you know, and all that. And if you're a writer, you're moving at a different pace. Everybody else is like getting right. jobs and they're buying houses and, and you're going home at Thanksgiving and your family saying, well, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm a writer. And then the natural follow-up question is, oh, well, have you published anything? You know, have you, and it might take years before you have to do that. So um, so patience, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, 
I heard you say um, one time, David, that you began your writing career writing short stories, uh, which a lot of people do. Um, and then you were challenged, if I remember right, please correct me if, I, if I'm not remembering this right. Uh, you were challenged to take a short piece of fiction that you had written and turn that into a novel. Did, do I remember that right? Yeah, I published a story in a magazine called The Edge Tales of Suspense which doesn't exist anymore, not because they published my story, I don't think. <laughs> um, but the editor of that magazine, a guy named Greg Gafoon, who's an excellent writer, a horror writer, um, had then gone on to be a editor at a small publishing company, Delirium Books. And so he was looking for people to write books for Delirium. And, and he said to me, have you ever thought of turning that story into a full-length novel? Um, it was kind of a longer story anyway, like 12,000 words. So yeah. um, it wasn't a huge leap to turn it into a novel. So yeah, that was how that my first book with the small press got published. So my question about that is um, when you have a, a challenge like that to take um, – you know, this story that in your mind uh, is probably a, a fully realized story in, in the 12,000 words, it has accomplished what you set out to accomplish in that. And then now you're going to take that and, and add, you know, 60,000 words or, you know, 70,000 words to it to make it a full novel. Where do you begin in in fleshing out this story and uh you know if, if someone else has that challenge how do you take a shorter work and how do you know where to beef it up and and where to add more details so i think that that kind of challenge has stumped a lot of people yeah that's a good question um i mean it did only go from twelve thousand words because greg uh cautioned me i should say warned me but he was <laughs> like if you want to have a better chance of getting this book published don't make it too long. Um, so it only went from 12,000 words to like 55,000 words. Um, so, so the way I'm, but the way I thought about it was that short story was basically like an outline, like a really detailed outline for the longer novel. Um, so it was really just a mat. So the, so the plot was there, if I'm remembering correctly. So it really was just a matter of, um, I had room to delve into the characters a little more deeply. Um, the main character, I think I probably was able to show his, it, most of it was taking place where the main character was at work, but I, the expanded space was a time to show the other part of his life, him at home, interactions with a spouse and things like that. So I think if anyone is ever doing that, it's an opportunity to put in, I think characterization is probably the part where you would get the most benefit because you would actually have the space to show the character in some different environments other than the main environment they're in, in the story. So seeing them at, seeing them at home, seeing things like that. Um, it's, it's an interesting challenge. I don't know how often people get that opportunity. The other, the other piece of advice I would give is to say yes if anyone ever approaches you and ask that. Um, there's the there's the advice of never say no to an editor. Right. And so when Greg said, "Have you ever thought of turning this into a book?" Of course, I really I hadn't thought of it that much because, like you said, I thought it was just 
that was the story was that right. thing. But I'm not, I don't feel like I do a lot of things right. But in that moment, my instinct to say, oh, sure, I've thought of that. Yeah, let me go for it was one of the times when I gave the right response um, and it worked out. Your new book is called Try Not to Breathe. It's been out uh, about a week now. Um, that's a very evocative title. Um, it, if I remember right, um, you don't always write books with the title in mind that will be the finished published title. Um, what, what does this title mean to you? Well, it was not the title I had in mind when I wrote the book, so I can say that. Um, the title came later. Um, but really, if you read the book, this is not giving anything away. Avery, the main character, I said, suffered this trauma in the line of duty. Um, she almost drowned in the line of duty as a police officer trying to rescue someone from a car accident. And she nearly died. And then she had some bad memories as a child associated with water, her father, um, who you know, would not win any awards for political correctness, um, <laughs> taught her to swim and, or I'm putting it in air quotes, taught her to swim in the old school way of just like <laughs> throwing, throwing her into a swimming pool and hoping <laughs> right. she would float. Um, so she had some bad associations with water. She'd had trauma in water. She had a fear of water. Um, and this is not, you could see where this is going in the course of the book. She's going to have to face that fear again, one more time in a big, big way at the end of the book. So the try not to breathe title is really just that when you're in water, you're trying not to breathe. You're trying not to suck in water. Um, but also it, it is a suspenseful sounding title in that if you're hiding from someone, if you're in danger, um, if you're trying not to make noise, if you're trying not to get caught, you try not to breathe, you hold your breath, you try to be still. So, and that kind of stuff happens in the book a couple times too, where characters are hiding from char other characters who intend to do them harm. Um, so that whole idea of try not to breathe was just kind of that, like the water, the fear, um, it might, you might end up having the REM song, try not to breathe, go through your head. That's immediately is, what I thought about, which is not a bad thing. And then yeah. as someone, as someone pointed out to me, um, the, I did not obviously plan this cause the title was picked a long, long time ago, but the book came out when I had COVID. So try not mm. to breathe somehow seemed to fit there too. <laughs> Fortunately, I was able to breathe the whole time, but yeah, it all, it all be careful what you name your book. You right. Know what's happen. I, I also thought the REM song and I just assumed that was a typical Gen X response to, um, you know, to a new book, but well, it, there. it's interesting. You can tell people who are about my age because <laughs> there are people who respond to it and say like, Oh, and I love that REM song. Um, right. And then people of a certain age, like older or younger than us, that doesn't really resonate with them. But anybody who <laughs> had automatic for the people playing a lot back in like 1992 or 1993, you get it. You get oh, it. yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, we mentioned earlier um, the the aspect of uh, of police and and police work uh, is you know plays very prominently in the book but it is not a police procedural um how do you uh juggle portraying um a a uh 
a a career a um uh something like police work without getting so um wrapped up in the details that it becomes a different thing like it's it's not a police procedural even though we are confronted with with lots of police and the way they do things um how do you juggle those things with with giving enough detail and enough backstory and enough character without it transforming into that being the thing yeah i have to just remind myself it's not a police procedural i'm not ed mcbain right i'm not writing that kind of i love those stories but i'm not writing that kind of story um, part of the freedom in the book is that Avery is a former police officer, but she's not a police officer now. So she is free to do kind of like a private detective story, right? Right. Um, she's free to do things that a police officer probably would not do. So a police officer who's on duty and in uniform or whatever would be bound by their their procedures and methods, right? Um, whereas Avery is no longer a police officer, she's a private citizen. Um, so she's not thinking, uh, she's not bound by the same thing. So she goes places that a police officer might not go. She talks to people in a way that a police officer might not talk. Um, and so it's really that, I think to me that's that, because her occupation is not police officer anymore, it's not about getting into the, the, all the details of the job. Um, it's more about her just as a character who happens to have formerly done this job. And then there are, we do get the point of view of at least one other police officer in the story, um, but it's, they're, they're not a main point of view. So most of it is just seeing um, Avery and Anna, and it's focused on that family dynamic. Um, Again, in Avery's case, through the framework of having been a police officer, but not not getting into all the details of that. David, I've, I've learned um, from talking to you uh, for several years that you are a plotter. You're an outliner. Um, what do you need your outline to accomplish uh, so that when you sit down to write, you're comfortable with the roadmap that you're that you're you know going to be using for the journey uh, of the novel um and and what do you what do you not need the outline to accomplish um like for instance what 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 do you need what do you need in the outline so that you are comfortable knowing when you can wing it and and let the characters be who they are versus uh, you know, knowing each day when you sit down, this is what the scene that I'm writing needs to accomplish. Yeah, what I need in the outline is just the big moments in the book, um, or what I think are going to be the big moments in the book, and the ending of the book, and where I think everybody's going to end up at the end of the book. So it's it really is just like the 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 three or four or five or whatever biggest moments in the story and the ending. And I understand that the outline, it's a security blanket, but it it's false security um, because every time I've ever written a book, I promise you every time I start writing the book and I get 
you know, 50 or 80 pages into the book and I look at what I'm writing and I look at the outline and I say, oh my gosh, I blew it. There isn't enough here for a book. <laughs> I'm, I'm screwed. There is not enough here. And, and then if I keep going, which is what I usually do, I realize, oh, there is enough here. I just have to trust myself to do that. So, so I need that false sense of security that everything is there, even though I know it's not there. Um, what I don't need in there is, for instance, like um, when I made the outline for Try Not to Breathe, um, I was focusing on Avery. I thought it was going to be Avery's story. And I thought Avery was going to be the only point of view character. I thought it was going to be her story. Um, my editor made a suggestion of, well, what if you incorporated the other Anna's point of view, the other sister's point of view? So you could have the ex-cop and then the other sister who's not a cop, you know, and I thought, okay, that sounded good. But as I started to write and the story felt a little bigger, we got other points of view. Some of these police officers and some of these bad guys, we get glimpses of their points of view. So I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, I think it almost always happens that the stuff at the end, what I think is going to happen at the end, changes. Um, because usually I, I like stories, and so I try to write stories where there's um, more than one big revelation at the end. So you don't just find out, oh, this is what happened or this is why it's happening, but there's another little twist, another turn at the end. And I almost never know what that secondary thing is going to be when I make the outline. It, it uh, occurs to me as I'm writing the book and as I'm going along. So, um, so those are things I don't feel like I have to know. I, I can get to the point, or I've gotten to the point where I can trust myself a little bit to feel like I can even though I panic around page 80, I trust myself enough to think I can kind of figure out my way through and get to the end and figure out a good ending. And that ending usually changes a little bit. Does it typically happen at that kind of page 80 or maybe a quarter of the way into the book? Is, is that where you start kind of panicking? Oh, I don't, I don't know that there's enough here for an entire book. Yeah. And I think that's probably when everybody panics when they're writing something longer. It's not, it's not an unusual, I, I always ask my students, I say, what's the hardest part of the book to write? The beginning, the middle, or the end? And the middle. It, well, right. Inevitably, <laughs> you'll get all different answers. You know, some, some people will say, oh, the beginning, and some people say the end, and some people say the middle. And I always say, it's the middle, for sure. Because you can write the, we've all written the beginning. Oh, yeah. You can, I, you can come I up have with, a, I have a folder on my computer with a hundred sure. amazing beginnings. I think every writer on earth has a thousand great oh, yeah. beginnings, yep. you know, first chapters, you know, where you're like, I'm the most brilliant person ever. Right. And if you get to the ending, if you get close enough to the ending, you should be able to figure out an ending. There's all that stuff behind you that is telling you what the ending is. Right. So if you get 80% of the way through the trip, you should be able to end it. Right. Yeah. Um, but the middle is the hard part. So I think everybody has had that experience of they think they have a great idea. They sit down, they feel like a genius for a couple of weeks, and then they hit the middle and they say, holy crap, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah, yeah. 
so David, what, what are you working on now? Um, you know, try not to breathe is out everywhere. Uh, you know, we know how the, the publishing process uh, works. This has probably been off of your desk for months and months. And, you know, your your uh, eyes have turned toward the new project. What, what are you working on these days? Well, so I have two completed manuscripts. Nice. Um, my next YA book has been turned in. Um, and that's called the Midnight Driving Club. And um, it, it's set in an affluent town where all the adults got together and decided no one in this town is going to drive until they graduate from high school. We want our kids to just concentrate on getting into the best college and taking their violin lessons and learning to speak <laughs> Chinese and Arabic and all those things. Right. Um, and volunteering at the homeless shelter and and you're not going to drive right um and the main character in the book is the only one of the few kids in town who doesn't have a lot of money and his family struggles financially and he has just been living his life to get into a good college um and not socialize and whatever well lo and behold a new kid shows up at school and that kid says i can't believe that you let these adults convince you not to drive. We are going to drive. And they form <laughs> the Midnight Driving Club where they drive. Uh, the story takes place today, but the, the, the kid who starts the driving club is obsessed with vintage 70s cars and 70s rock and roll because he thinks that's like the authentic driving experience that they should all have. So they start driving and it doesn't go well naturally because, you know, young people driving vintage cars um, which was basically my high school years. Um, right. Yeah, it doesn't work out well. So there's that. And then um, I turned in my next adult book to Berkeley, and I'm starting to revise that now. Um, it's currently called Storm Warning, and it's about a guy who is um, the main character, has had marital problems. He's trying to put his family back together. He's living on a barrier island off the coast of Florida in a rundown building with that's about to be condemned and there are just a handful of tenants in there and lo and behold a hurricane is bearing down on this little island in this rickety how this rickety apartment building that they live in um the causeway gets washed out the power goes out they're stuck on this island and lo and behold one of these tenants ends up dead. There's a murderer on the island with them as a storm is bearing down and they have to try to ride out the storm. They can't call for help. They can't do anything um, but try to make it through the night. And so that should be out next summer. I love it. I can't wait for that. I've written down storm warning and next year we'll see if, uh, if that title uh, survived. I'm going to bet no, <laughs> but I could, I've been surprised before, but I'm going to bet no. Well, well, I can't wait to see what it becomes and, and to read that. Try not to breathe available everywhere. Now go support local books and visit your local bookstore, pick it up. Uh, if you don't have a great local bookstore to go visit, we're going to put links in the show notes to this episode where you can grab it from, uh, from Amazon, uh, or, uh, also from Audible, um, I have not yet gotten to listen to the audiobook of this. Um, have you listened to any of it, David? 
I've listened to little snippets and um, the, the woman who is the narrator um, is very good. Um, she has relatives from Kentucky. If you live in Kentucky, nice. you know there's an ongoing debate. It, well, if you live in Kentucky, it's not a debate. Outside <laughs> of Kentucky, there might be a debate, but about how the, that city, Louisville, is pronounced. Um, and she knew how to pronounce Louisville. So people in Kentucky at least will be happy about that. Nice. Yes. Nice. I, I, my maternal grandfather uh, was a Kentuckian and, and yeah, they're, they're serious about that. So if you want to start a fight, <laughs> yes, pronounce it Louisville and you'll, you'll have a fight. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, you yes. will. David, always fun catching up. Tell people where they can uh, find uh, you online. If they want to dig into your back catalog and, you know, follow along for all the, great news of stuff coming up. Yeah. My website is davidbellnovels.com and I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. It's all David Bell novels. So you can find me there and that's where I talk about events and new releases and all that stuff. Excellent. We'll uh, post those links in the show notes as well to make it easy for folks to find you. David, as always, uh, glad to catch up. Uh, we're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Try Not to Breathe. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.